Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. I said I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, January Juno. I guess that's what we would call this one, isn't it? And it. I hope you're having a great new year. I hope that uh, 2021 is being good to you so far. And uh, it's great to be here again with you for the Juno Report. Now, uh, this month, uh, some pretty exciting things happening. The um, regulations for uh, the air carriers... Um, related to the Department of Transportation, comes into effect on uh, January 11th. And ACB, in collaboration with the um, Advocacy Committee, the Transportation Committee, and Guide Dog Users Incorporated, um, had a community call this week on that very topic. And I decided that although that's available in podcast form, uh, sometimes people have trouble finding those and uh, getting back to that. And also, this is pretty important stuff, so we want to cover it. And the other thing um, is that uh, sometimes we just want to get the content and we don't really care so much about all the questions and answers or people's personal stories, whatever. So... As uh, is always the case with Juno, um, you're going to get the succinct version of this, the abridged copy. None of the content has changed and the ending will be the same, but um, you will get a little less of the chatter. So I think that's helpful for us. Thought we'd be um, good to uh, review that again this month for Juno, and then we'll be doing some subsequent um, activities um, as part of ACB and Guide Dog Users to um, facilitate everyone's understanding of the Air Carrier Access Act changes. So without further discussion, let's join Clark Rackful from ACB and the other panelists to talk about the new DOT regulations coming into effect in just a few days. Well, depending on when you hear this podcast, it might be already in effect, but uh, on the 11th of January, nevertheless. All right. Thank you, Darrow and Cindy, and Happy New Year to everyone joining us. Listening over to ACB Radio or downloading and listening via your favorite podcast player. Um, That one's a Shout out to the future when this is made available as a podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Clark Rockfall. I am the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. And we have a very special program for you here this evening. We will be discussing the final rule from the Department of Transportation regarding traveling by air with service animals. Uh, This is something near and dear to many of our hearts and wet noses, um, and especially to those who are members of Guide Dog Users um, Incorporated, one of our ECB affiliates. And here this evening, uh, one of our panelists, it's Sarah Calhoun. Good evening. Hello, Clark. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Sarah, what is your role for GDUI? I am president of GDUI. I was just elected in July of last year, 2020. Great. And we also have the advocacy chair for GDUI, no stranger to ACB, Melanie Brunson. Melanie, good evening. 
Good evening, Clark, and thanks very much for having me. Uh, so, and Melanie, when you were still wearing your ECB hat, was this a hot button issue? Um, oh yeah. It, yeah, it's been an issue for a long time. Yeah, and it will uh, be. Uh, and it doesn't for seem like it's going to go anywhere, right? No, that's so, correct. In addition to Sarah and Melanie from GDUI, we also have representation from both. ACB's Transportation and Environmental Access Committees. Uh, it's hard to introduce one without introducing the other. And because Sheila Styron always gets, uh, you know, the short end of the stick when we go alphabetically, Sheila, I'll introduce you first. Good evening. Hi there, Clark. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, I want to say that um, I do wear a transportation committee hat right now, but I'm a past president of Guide Dog Uses Incorporated. And uh, Becky Davidson was my vice president, and she went on to be president. And Becky, how are you doing Absolutely. this evening? I'm doing well. Thanks, Clark. It's great to be here with everybody. Um, and in addition to being past president of GDUI, I spent 21 years doing advocacy and outreach for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. So I've done a lot of air traveling and been involved with uh, the DOT air transportation forums and the uh, TSA Coalition on Disability. So this is on we go. <laughs> so I just learned something new here this evening, and um, for folks listening who do not know me, I am blind, but I'm a keen traveler. I have two dogs, but they are both most certainly pets, um, and there was be no mistaking that if you ever meet them. I did not realize we had such a GDUI, um, it's like royalty here, so many... Uh, current and past leaders of such a strong ACB affiliate. So thank you to all of you for joining us here this evening. Um, and, and you're all guide dog users as well. Um, and I guess I want to start with, with Becky here. Before we get into this final rule, uh, Becky, in the past, what has it been like for you traveling by air with a service animal? Generally, um Generally, it's it's been pretty calm. I have been fortunate enough to have not had a lot of negative experiences with uh, so-called emotional supports or irresponsibly handled pets in the airport. I mean, a little bit. For the most part, um, there's been that needing to educate people sometimes um, or explain what, you know, what my right and my responsibility are. Um, but for the most part, it's gone, it's gone pretty smoothly, um, as smoothly as any air travel goes, if you know what I mean. Um, but generally, um, I've had experiences where people have been absolutely wonderful. I've had a couple of experiences uh, where actually a passenger in first class insisted on trading seats with me. And uh, for, that only happened once. And unfortunately, it was a really short flight. It would have been nice if it was a longer <laughs> flight. But, but um, you know, those kinds of things happen once in a while. And sometimes you, you, you get to your seat and the person who's assigned to the seat next to you has a fit because they don't want to be near a dog. And the flight attendants generally try to work it out uh, and generally do. Um, you know, you meet all kinds of people when you travel a lot, and some uh, some experiences are negative, and some are are really positive. And I would say, on the whole, I've had more positive than negative. <clears throat> all right, and Melanie, has that been similar to your experiences? Yes, for the most part, I think my experiences have been positive. I have, in recent years, had more encounters with yappy and fairly aggressive dogs than uh, than I used to. I think I've, I've noticed that more often. Um, and dogs on flexi leashes that wanted to visit my dog and couldn't understand why I wasn't happy with the idea, things like that. But that's been more recent Um uh, I think the numbers of incidents like that have grown in recent years. 
Yeah. And Sheila, have you found airline <laughs> employees to be very accommodating when traveling with a service animal and flying with a service animal? I have, Clark. I find that when you get to the gate in an airport, it's sort of the gate crew's little thiefdom. And when you're on an airplane, there are a lot of things that if something does go wrong, you're going to have to deal with it later because they're pretty much in charge. So I've always found it a good policy to be very friendly to people when I'm flying. And I've had, um, I've had for the most part, um, really quite positive experiences with airline staff. Uh, a, a funny experience that I had that I enjoy sharing is once I was in line for um, uh, a flight, and I think it was, pretty sure it was Southwest Airlines, and I was in line and a staff, and this was probably seven or eight years ago, so not super recently, Um but I had an employee come up to me when I was kind of far back in the line, and they said, you know, when you get up to the front, you're going to have to show some papers, you know, to, um, you know, for your talk. And I said, well, no, that, that isn't really the case, but I'll just talk to them about it when I get up to the front. So I got up to the front of the line, and I didn't even have a chance to say anything. And the employee behind the counter looked at me and says, oh, oh, good. This is a real service animal. She goes, last week I had a 15 15- argument with somebody who's trying to convince me that their bowl of goldfish was, you know, were service animals. (laughs) So we do have amusing things that happen. And for the most part, I, I, when I was president of GDY, I certainly worked with a lot of people who had some horrendous experiences traveling, but personally, I just haven't as Becky and Melanie. And Sarah, similar question to you. I asked Sheila about um, airline and airport employees, and everyone's kind of touched on this, but I guess for you personally, Sarah, how have your experiences been with other passengers when traveling with a service animal? Oh, uh, other passengers, they, uh, normally my experience has, has been very good. You know, um, especially if I'm flying by myself, um, I can have a tendency uh, for more people to want to talk to me. And also, if they're sitting next to me, um, of course, I, you know, tell them if my dog bothers you, please let me know. And people have been very nice, very kind. But you get those that um, when we're taking off or landing or somewhere during the flight, they just have to bend over and pet your dog because they said, oh, I think your dog is a little nervous. And <laughs> so, but uh, like Sheila, I think, you know, being very kind, pleasant, it, it uh, and then you just kind of deal with things later. Um, but uh, normally I have had a, a very good experience. There, there's been a few times in the airport with the yappy little dogs, um, but nothing major, really nothing major. And I'm sure many of our of our listeners can relate to these experiences. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Melanie, over the years, as as you've been advocating for ACB, for GDUI, and as the the service animal issue has arisen, um, from what I'm hearing from our, our panelists here is that they and their service animals are treated very well by airlines and other passengers. You know, maybe folks um, aren't as familiar with proper etiquette around service animals, but it sounds like for the most part, everyone's friendly, everyone wants to be helpful. So where does the issue come in? Why, why do we need, or why has it been necessary that over the years we've had final enforcement statements and now a final rule from the Department of Transportation if the process, process has gone so smoothly? <laughs> well, I think, like I said, um, when I I was talking and others alluded to, more and more often people with service animals started flying. And as people with service animals started flying, one, two things happened. First off, the number of service animals that are being used for a variety of uh, 
disability accommodations has grown. And with the growth of the number of animals, the types of animals that people wanted to claim as service animals has started to grow. And a lot of them are not as well trained as guide dogs. Um, but so people have had some issues in identifying, first of all, what it, what constitutes a service animal. And wanting to be helpful, they have admitted um, animals that they weren't quite sure about, but didn't want to be offensive. To be some problems. But also, as people started to see service animals on airplanes and in public places, they began to think, well, gee, gosh, it would be really cool to take my pet. And I could say that it's an emotional support animal or a psychiatric service animal or that I have another kind of disability because you don't have to identify what the disability is. And um, so I'll just try to see if I can do this. So what we have had, and I know people who have done it, so I'm not making a generalization. But what has happened is that people have started to figure out that they could take pets on and claim that they were service dogs. And as that has started to happen, um, there have been incidents where animals that weren't trained or were maybe somewhat trained but weren't used to flying and got um, upset by the experience, got aggressive with, uh, with other passengers. So we have started to find um, instances where airlines have wanted and the government has felt obliged to respond to their needs and try to be a bit more restrictive and pull back on some of the um, the allowances that they had made before to try to accommodate as many people as possible without uh, being uh, overly restrictive. And hence, the government has been trying to figure out what the uh, how to respond to both the needs of the disability community and the airline industry, as well as the passengers who use that who travel with people with disabilities, and to meet everybody's needs in a in a balanced manner. And thank you for that, Melanie. Um, does anyone else have anything that they would like to add? Uh, and again, oh, the Sarah. Yes, please, Sarah. Sarah. Um, just quickly, I, uh, Melanie mentioned it that um, uh, this has happened several times, whether I'm uh, flying or uh, at a store, restaurant, etc. People will say, "Oh my gosh, you know, where can I get one of those harnesses <laughs> so I can take my dog <laughs> into the restaurant?" Or you know, and so that has, as we know, has been um, a problem. And then, of course, selling these fake certificates for an emotional or emotional sport dog and a harness and um, tags that say they're a service animal, but. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is Melanie. I actually had that happen to me when I was working at ACB. A lady, I was just about to enter the building and uh, was coming back from a meeting and a woman stopped me. Can I ask you a quick question? And I said, oh, of course. Mm -hmm. And she did the same thing. Where can I get a harness like that? I've got everything else I need, but I need a harness like that. I said, well... <laughs> if you'd like to fill out an application for a guide dog and submit it to one of the guide dog schools, but you will have to get a doctor to certify that you're blind. <laughs> oh my, the lengths I'm, that some people will go through. Yes, Sheila. I guess I, I'm maybe going to turn the conversation just a little bit and say that, you know, that has been an emerging issue and was very proud during my time as, as president of GDUI um, and VP before that to have worked um, in coalition with a number of other organizations on 
rewriting the service animal definition. And we started in 2000 and it came to fruition about eight years later. And we were so proud that that the only animal that was now identified as a service animal was a dog, although businesses were asked to give special consideration to miniature horses acting as guide animals if it wouldn't represent you know, an undue burden to businesses to, to go down that road because some of us did know some very responsible time. Um, and so that was such a positive direction that the DOJ, the Civil Rights Division took. And when we embarked on this latest journey with the Department of Transportation, we thought, oh, great, you know, they're, they're going to um, take emotional service animals, emotional support animals out of the mix and you know, this will be a step in the right direction. We asked them to harmonize the definition with that of the Department of Justice. And we thought, oh, we're really on the right track. And I, I just, I hope I'm not jumping the gun too much to say that I'm just so... They also took a step backwards in asking us to turn in written attestations of our dog's behavior, their health, all of these things that are not required under the ADA and under the Civil Rights Division of, of um, dealing with the definition and how we need to present ourselves when we enter places of public accommodation. I feel like, for me, we were talking about earlier, it hasn't been that terrible with the emotional support animals, but I think it's going to be extremely burdensome for me personally to have to fill out those forms. And for some people who aren't computer savvy or have people to help them, that that it may make them miss flights. I'm just and, really concerned. And mm -hmm. Sheila, we will, we will get to those concerns. Um, I guess before we jump into the... A, a dive here into the final rule. Uh, the last year, the Department of Transportation issued a final enforcement statement. Um, and some of the items in this final rule carried over from that final enforcement statement. And these are issues raised by ACB members, GDUI members, as well as the, the broader disability community. And one of those is that airlines, um, here in the final rule, the Department of Transportation has continued to allow airlines to bar passage to animals, individual animals that display um, aggressive behavior or could pose a harm to airline employees or other passengers. And I'm curious to hear the, the group's thoughts about that. Um, is, it, is that something that you all agree with? Does that sound like that is in, in line with the ADA? Yes, aggression isn't tolerated. At, and based off of the behavior of a specific animal, correct? Yes. Because that also goes into a second item that airlines will continue to be prohibited to ban an entire breed of animal. Um, so, for example, uh, specifically, Delta Airlines has uh, implemented a basically a pit bull ban, much like uh, some cities and jurisdictions around the country. Um, the Department of Transportation in the final enforcement statement said that breed bans were not allowed and in the final rules, they continue to prohibit um, banning entire breeds of animals. And I, I feel like those two are kind of tied together. You know, if you're going to ban an entire breed, you're not making an assessment based off of the individual behavior right. of an animal. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. I agree uh, with Sarah, that. any thoughts on those two mm -hmm. items? Yeah, that that is kind of a tough one. But when... Now that they're uh, dealing with service dogs, 
and not animals, <laughs> and that um, no matter what the breed is, if they have been properly trained, then there should not be an issue with our dogs. Um, on a side note, uh, uh, I would be a little afraid of someone with a pit bull, but there again, it goes into the training. So I think if, if the dogs are trained properly and they are an illegitimate service dog, um, if they've been owner trained or come from a certified, um, I mean, I'm sorry, an accredited guide dog school and they act like they are supposed to and do their work, then, then I am, I'm fine with that. Well, I think, you know, one of the things, this is Melanie, and one of the things that I saw in looking through some of the comments was that some people were concerned um, that, that, that dogs were being misidentified as being a dangerous breed when they really weren't. So that could pose a problem as well if, uh, if someone isn't as familiar with their dog breeds as they think they are. And uh, somebody's dog gets mislabeled. I think this is Becky. I think the focus here is and should remain on the behavior and the handling of, of the dog rather than on, on a specific breed. Um, I think we've all heard pit bull stories that, you know, give us nightmares, but that's, those are, those are things that have probably happened, but there are certainly well-trained, well-handled pit bulls that serve well as, as service animals. I don't, I don't know of any that are guide dogs, but uh, there are other legitimately trained uh, service dogs out there who, who fit the definition and who, um, who act accordingly, who, who behave accordingly in public. And Becky, I think you, you raised a, a good point there that gets us to the how the Department of Transportation is defining a service animal. Uh, so a DOT now defines a service animal as a dog only, um, only a dog that is individually trained to perform tasks or work to benefit a person with a disability, emotional support animals will no longer be considered service animals and psychiatric service animals are required to be treated like service animals. Um, so there may not be uh, pit bulls or other breeds who have been trained to be guide dogs, but they could be a psychiatric service animal or some other form of service animal. Um, and they, they need to be treated the same way. So uh, any thoughts from the group on the, the definitions? And I guess I'll start with Sheila, because you mentioned with the ADA <laughs> mo modernization that dogs and miniature horses were included. Well, now we're, we're a bit more restrictive. Are we concerned that the, the, the definition is getting tighter about what is and what is not a service animal now that we're dogs only? No, I, I believe everyone is very happy about that. I, I maybe shouldn't have muddied the waters by throwing in the, the um, miniature horses were not, they were, they were included only as a, a suggestion that business owners, if they could accommodate them, I don't really um, think there has been too much industry-wide unhappiness with um, the definition. Um, I don't know how many people out there are now working with miniature horses and, and flying. Um, I haven't heard any dissatisfaction on that score, but I imagine if there is a well-trained miniature horse um, handler out there who wants to fly, that, that that is sort of sad. And I have to say that I hadn't really thought about that much until you just brought it up. But I think we're, we're pretty happy with the idea that they have adopted that definition so that we can all be on the same page. You know, life's pretty confusing in our country with different definitions for public access, for housing and for transportation. So now that transportation and 
DOJ public access definitions will be the same, I think it'll be a lot, it may help us moving forward, educating the public and be a lot less confusing for business owners and everyone. Thanks, Sheila. Does anyone else have thoughts on the, the definitions provided by the Department of Transportation? I think when we, this is Becky, I think when we all submitted comments, this was one of the areas that we really felt strongly that we wanted that definition to be brought in line with the ADA definition, and they did do that. But as we'll be talking about shortly, they did miss the mark somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. And I guess one thing I'd like to point out, a lot of the things that we're talking about so far are requirements for the airlines, right? Um, like the airlines are prohibited from having uh, <laughs> restrictions solely based on breed. Airlines are required to treat psychiatric service animals the same as service animals. Um, these next items are not requirements, but they are what airlines are allowed to do um, in the process of a person with a disability flying with a service animal um, completing their flight. So the Department of Transportation has created two attestation forms. And these forms, airlines may choose to use them or not. They are not required to use them, but if the airline is choosing to uh, use written documentation, then they must use the Department of Transportation forms. Does that make sense? Um, but I hope so. We might get some questions on it later. So airlines are not mandated to use forms, but if they decide to use forms, then they have to use the Department of Transportation forms. And these forms created by Department of Transportation um, have the passenger attest to uh, the health of their service animal, uh, as well as its behavior, and only for long flights over eight hours, whether the animal is capable of relieving itself in a sanitary, sanitary fashion. Um, and Sheila, you've already touched on these forms. So I guess before getting into the content of the forms, Sheila, do you want to reiterate your thoughts on um, having written attestation? I guess the main points I would, I would like to focus on are that when we're going out in public for public access, businesses are allowed to ask us two questions. And I wouldn't mind at all if the airlines asked us those same questions. But we've fought long and hard as people with disabilities who work with guide dogs and other kinds of service dogs to not have to provide written documentation anytime we want to go into a boutique or a restaurant. And I, I feel very um, unhappy about having to do it to fly if airlines do move forward with requiring this documentation. And I feel like it's a step backwards from the rights that we earned our civil rights with the Americans with Disabilities Act, that all of a sudden we have to fill out these forms. It, it seems completely unfair. I remember reading when all of this was moving along, but not quite here yet, that, that it wasn't the people flying with service animals who had caused the airlines to, to take this position and consider this as a possible regulation. Um, it wasn't us. So why now are we the ones who may be forced to have to, to go forward with the onerous task of filling out these forms, dealing with difficult online uh, forms or having to get people to help us or wait in line for a longer time, maybe missing a flight. It's, it's just such a blow if this comes to pass. 
And I'll add that if, if a flight is booked uh, more than two days or 48 hours in advance of the departure, then airlines are allowed to require that form uh, 48 hours in advance of the flight. Airlines may also, I mean, if, if you book your flight in within that 48-hour window, so a, uh, a real short turnaround, then airlines cannot require you to submit the forms in advance. However, for all passengers traveling with a service animal, airlines are allowed to require the form uh, to be presented at the departure gate uh, before boarding. And the forms, uh, airlines can only require the forms to be completed once per trip. So not for every flight, but for every, uh, shall we say, booking or round trip. Uh, Sarah or Melanie, anything that you would like to add about the, the written attestation forms? Uh, this Sarah, um, yeah, this, yeah, these, it, this is kind of a, um, kind of a big deal, I guess, that we're all facing, like, uh, was mentioned that, you know, it was because people trying to pass their puppy, their dog off as an emotional support dog so they could have them fly, then, and the problems that it caused, um, is making us having to complete these forms. Um, I'm not 100% against the forms, but there are several things on the forms that I am against. Um, mm -hmm. They want the, the, the dog's name several times. I don't know, at least probably eight times. I, I don't think that is uh, should be required. Um, a lot of us know that when we're out in public, um, it, and it's up to the handler's choice if they want to tell somebody their dog's name, but it's, uh, it is very distracting and to the dog and to the handler if someone else calls your dog by their name. So I could see where the possibility that might come about from maybe the airline uh, attendance or something. Sarah, um, what what is the potential harm in others knowing your service animal's name? Um, you said it could be distracting to you or the or the dog mm -hmm. um, in an airport or in any mm -hmm. um, public setting where you are navigating and traveling. What is the mm -hmm. potential harm or risk to others knowing your animal's name? Mm -hmm. Um, if you're wherever, if you're wherever you're walking through a building, going upstairs or wherever you are and you and your dog are working, you've given that command forward and then you want them to find the elevator or whatever. If somebody calls your dog's name, they're going to lose concentration and therefore that is putting, um, you and your dog in unsafe, a possible unsafe situation. They, they might miss seeing that car coming or across the parking lot or miss a step or something like that. So it's very distracting to the dog. And the dog and the handler, they work as one, and they just need to be communicating kind of back and forth to each other as they are working, um, you know, navigating through what wherever area they're in. So... Thank you but, for that explanation. Um, yes. So, and another thing I didn't, and on the form, they want your veterinarian's name, phone number. And I think because uh, in the event something were to happen, then I don't know if it's the airlines, I guess they would, could call your vet to see, is your dog have the rabies vaccination by this date? And I know for my vet, and I would imagine several other veterinarian offices, they won't give out any information about your dog unless they get the okay from the owner. So I, I, those the forms are a little um, kind of confusing. And I think, you know, like Becky said, it's kind of missed the mark on some things. 
I, I'm sure it'll come up in, in questions later on, but any other comments from Melanie or Becky about the written attestation forms from the Department of Transportation? Sure. This is Melanie. And right. um, I think, you know, my, my concern, some of my concerns people have already mentioned. Um, I, I just, I want to go back for a second to the issue of them requiring that you give the dog's name on the form because the name of your dog is is central to the command structure so the first thing you say when you want to give a dog a command is you know the dog's name and then you tell them what it is you want them to do and when you're in a situation like an air, on an airplane um when the flight crew knows the dog's name they have the ability to take control away from you and that does two things one like uh sarah said it distracts the dog but two it it frankly puts you in a situation where you're violating their very rule because in another section of the rule it says that the dog is supposed to be the, the the handler is supposed to maintain control of the dog at all times and if someone deliberately takes control of that dog then you're you have to either be able to reestablish it or um or if you feel like they're doing it and taking advantage of a of a a situation where they have the power to do that, then you might feel unwilling but um, powerless to do something about it. And so I just think that it's a, uh, it, while you might argue that there is some justification for attestations regarding issues that are related to health and safety, I don't see any need for that one and i particularly don't see that it's required that you fill it in so many times on the form um the other thing is that this form that we're talking about and you alluded to it clark it's required every time you travel so every time you make a reservation if it involves two flights there and two flights back you only have to do the form once but every time you book when they started doing forms a couple of years ago you could give them to the airline and have them keep it on file for a year and it would apply to all of your trips on that airline but now it's a new form for every time you you book a trip and I just think that that is overly burdensome uh, as it as it stands. Thanks, Melly. And Becky, you wanted to add something on this topic? All right. Um, not hearing Becky, I will move on. And Melanie, I think you'd already touched on this. Okay, I'm sorry, Clark. I was un I was muted and I didn't realize it. Not a problem. <laughs> um, I, I agree with Sheila. Um, I, I kind of feel like one of the basic tenets of the ADA, and I know we're not really, I, I know this is not a requirement of the ACAA in that, but one of the basic tenets was that we did not have to prove our um, need for or or want for a service dog. We did not have to prove that we had a disability that would be benefited by having a service dog. Um, and and basically, I feel like I'm being told, and, and you know, I never objected to those two questions that the ADA allows. And I think something similar to that would certainly be okay for the airlines to ask. Um, but I, I really object to having to go the extra mile with information that, that you know, they may not need um, and that maybe they shouldn't have. I, I totally agree with Sarah and Melanie about the dog's name. Um, and I just find it concerning that, you know, that we're kind of going down this road through, through no cause of our own. Yeah. I, I imagine this will, will remain an issue here in, into the future. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not going to be something that we're going to solve in this conversation. But again, thank you all for sharing your perspectives, especially on that um, difficult aspect of this final rule. Um, a couple more items here before we open it up to 
Q&A from our uh, large audience. And these more go into uh, what else airlines are allowed to require. So an airline may require that a passenger be limited to two, only two service animals. Um, Melanie used to work with the Blinded Veterans Association and, you know, in, in that role, did, did you work with, or did you know individuals that may have more than one service animal? I did not personally know anyone who had more than one, but I think that there are, for instance, there, I know of people, for instance, who had, um, a guide dog and a PTSD dog. Um, so a psychiatric service dog could be used in conjunction with a dog that um, that guided or was a hearing dog or that sort of thing. Um, and and I know of people who have dogs that um, spell each other, kind of like a interpreters do. Mm-hmm. A, a dog will work um, and serves someone for a couple of hours and then need a break, and so they'll use another another one um, for things like physical tasks, for instance. Um, so I think that there are some instances, although I've never personally known anyone who required um, two animals to accompany them in their travels, but I have heard about the possibility does, that does exist. Okay. I do know of one person who has a guide dog and also has a diabetic alert dog that alerts to blood sugar mm-hmm. <clears throat> ah, so that would be another instance. Yeah, guide dog is a normal size guide dog, and the the diabetic alert dog is a small dog that could be even in a carrier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Clark, this is Sheila Young. I want to yes. let you know it is six forty five. Yes, thank you, Sheila. We'll go a, a little bit more mm-hmm. here. Um, so, other things that. The DOT is allowing, again, allowing airlines to require, if they so choose, um, airlines may require that a service animal uh, fit within the footprint of the passenger's uh, seat. So the, the seat space, you know, under the, in front of the passenger seat. Uh, also, they may, airlines may require for the service animal to be leashed, harnessed, or tethered at all times. Um, Curious to hear the group's thoughts. And uh, Sheila Styron, um, any thoughts on those two items? Well, as I mentioned earlier, a a lot of times what happens on an airplane really becomes uh, completely under, you know, the jurisdiction of the flight crew. And I have seen through the years that the flight crew usually makes pretty good decisions about accommodating people that can't be too close together or an an animal that may need a little bit more space. And I know that that has been one of the issues with um, miniature horses working as guide animals in the flying arena, that they can't lie down and fit in the way that a dog can. And even different of us in our community do a better job tucking our dogs up and under. And so I think, um, I guess personally, I would have preferred that it had been left a little bit more open so that the flight crews would have the ability to make decisions on a more individual basis. But I certainly do understand um, on one hand, the need for some uniformity. And if it was a huge problem, maybe I don't have enough information to know know why it needed to be made more cut and dry than it than it had been handled in the past people certainly should try a little bit harder in some instances to to tuck their dogs up under the seat in front of them the way we are mostly taught at our our various guide dog schools and uh, 
And I understand. the tethering, I, I guess the tethering is it's sort of this, there are a few uh, situations where service animals need to maybe perform a task um, in, in a range of motion that wouldn't encompass a leash length. But I, I maybe somebody else here has some good examples of why that right should have been preserved on an airline because I haven't thought about it that much and I'm not sure. And, and again, those are items that um, the Department of Transportation is not requiring it, but they're giving airlines the leeway right. to require it um, if they deem necessary. So in, in my mind, it seems like we have some good opportunities to to work with and educate and help train airlines on um, what should be acceptable and uh, what is you know to the benefit of passengers and everyone's health and safety while traveling. So I just want to thank the panelists here again this evening, Sarah Calhoun, Melanie Brunson, Becky Davidson, and Sheila Styron. And again, thank you to Sheila and Darrow and Cindy for organizing this event here tonight. And to everyone out there listening, keep advocating. All right, that completes our presentation uh, for uh, this time on uh, Juno Report. And uh, I think this is a very, very important topic. You'll be hearing a lot about this. I've seen that several of the schools have uh, sent out memoranda to their graduates um, describing the um, regulations and describing what they think will be happening. We don't quite know yet exactly how airlines will be implementing um, everything, but we will be looking forward to learning about that, and we will certainly bring you more information as we receive it here at the GDUI Juno Report. For January's Juno Report, thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to being with you again next month. You've been listening to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.